Hello and welcome to Piece by Piece, the podcast where we piece together what makes a world without violence. While we don't always see it, gender-based violence is all around us. At ANOVA, we believe in a future without violence. But what does a future without violence look like, and how do we get there? My name is Dr. Annalise Trudell, and I'm your host. This week's episode, I assume that what I did, I was not capable of doing. A conversation on harm and accountability. Before we dive in, I want to take a moment to note that this episode is incredibly unvarnished and frankly messy. Unlike many other episodes where I come to you from a place of being a knower and I want to convey some knowledge, in this one I'm modeling some verbal processing and the messiness that that entails. The part of our conversation, we're sort of working through concepts that are really hefty and ethically challenging. And there's moments where we arrive and there's moments where we don't. I would want to call attention to one specific moment in our conversation on accountability as it relates to repair where I wish I could do that part over because I step into a place of speaking on behalf of the survivor and how they might have felt. And that was unfair of me. All right. I think both of us today feel a lot of trepidation about the conversation we're about to have. So unlike most episodes, I'm not giving a bio introduction to our guest today. Um, won't be referring to him by name. We have known each other for a while, and I think there's a lot of bravery in what he's about to do. But before we get there, I do want to set the stage very intentionally. So today we're going to be talking with someone um, about accountability, and we wanted to be able to have that conversation in a way that really wasn't academic. Because, you know, for us to address sexual violence, and I've been sort of on a soapbox about this the past few years, but we've done a lot of work at supporting survivors, at naming sort of the issue. But unless we turn the attention and the focus to those who perpetrate and get better at naming that in a way that doesn't sort of increase shame, because really that's not going to lead to behavior change, that it sort of supports folks in naming that they have caused harm and taking accountability for that. There's so much work to be done on that end of the spectrum. So in order to have that kind of conversation in a really fulsome way that our listeners could perhaps see themselves in uh, the story in front of us as well, we're going to speak from a place of lived experience. Our guest today is going to speak about harm he's caused. That can be received a whole bunch of different ways. So for some of you who are survivors, this might not be the episode for you. And content warning, absolutely about that. Um, You know, this is really meant for those who are interested around what accountability can look like, where we need to dig into that space. It also is meant for those, uh, frankly, male-identified folks who've caused harm, especially, and sort of modeling what this could be. And by no means am I setting our guest up for perfection, because that would be false and awful, but we are going to talk through a way in which uh, accountability was taken up. So with all of that context in play, welcome, guest. Thanks, Annalise. So, you know, let's just take a pause for a second. I want to know, I want folks to know about sort of the story that is the hinge point for our conversation. So the moment um, or moments that you've caused harm and been able to identify that perhaps not in the moment, maybe afterwards, 
but at sort of will then build upon that in terms of all of the different ways that that's played out going forward for you and how we can think about all of that repercussion and that sort of ownership from a lens of accountability. But let's go back in time. Let's go back to a moment um, and you can walk us through so that we can have that context to have this conversation in a grounded way where you did cause harm. Okay, for sure. Uh, thank you. So my history with causing harm uh, pertains to a, a few moments in high school, um, particularly in the earlier years, grade nine and 10, uh, when my when, when my friend group was, you know, we were all just starting to drink, just starting to, you know, smoke weed a little bit. Um, not that not, I'm not, I'm not priming myself to, to make an excuse or anything. I, I recognize the culpability of my actions, but um, yeah, it, it was just a, a period of time when, when yeah, I'm doing a bit more partying within our, our small friend group. And uh, in grade nine, uh, there were two instances while we were all uh, together, a, a group of, of uh, guys, and, and we had a group of fr- uh, girlfriends as well. And there were a couple instances where I uh, groped a woman in, in, my, in my friend group who were too intoxicated to consent. And I, I didn't think of it like, like that at the time. Um, I knew it was wrong, um, but it was, you know, a, a weird mindset where I, I felt like when you're drinking and, and, you know, I don't know if it's hormones or whatever. Um, but yeah, like I, I just, I did things that I, that I didn't think I would do. Um, and I remember already being very ashamed of these things when I woke up the next day. And, and especially the second one, I was like, you know, once it was a mistake that I clearly acknowledged, the second one was I was starting to form this opinion that there was something uh, fundamentally flawed with me. So you could say the shame had started. And then um, in grade 10, or I think the summer between nine and 10, perhaps, uh, another instance when I had uh, a couple buddies over and then one close female friend of mine and um you know again drinking um and 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 smoking around uh, again this is not totally important at the end of the evening i had volunteered to bring my intoxicated female friend up from you know we were we were down like a gazebo thing and and coming up to to the, the main part of the, the house that we were staying at uh, and I volunteered to do that because I uh, wanted to ensure her safety. That was the original intent. And then as we were walking up, um, she was kind of swaying and in the process of trying to secure her, I recall uh, having my hands on her body. And in that state, I um, ultimately caused harm where I, uh, you know, touched her inappropriately. Um, like, yeah, put, put my hands down her pants for a, a brief second. Um, and that was, that was 
and then it ended like it wasn't it all happened so fast and and uh I, I yeah she left to get her cab home and yeah um yeah that that one was was weird and another one like that time I, I woke up and I uh, rather than concluding this mistake, I had assumed that I was not believing, like my memories were incorrect, because that was the type of thing where I had assumed that what I did, I was not capable of doing. Um, and uh, and so I, I just kind of neglected it, um, pretended that that it didn't exist. And then a couple weeks later, uh, talking to some of my, my guy friends and you know one of my buddies turns to me and says oh I, I heard what happened between you and so-and-so and I said well what happened between me and so-and-so and he said oh you, you fingered her and and I, 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 I remember like he was saying it in this like fist pump like way to get some type of vibe um, not that I care about that kind of accolade um, but I remember uh clearly seeing a sort of decision between, you know, I either uh, def defend this, like I, I either validate that it happened um, and admit that I have committed this gigantic mistake or I lie and pretend that it didn't happen. Um, so I chose the latter option and I said, no, that did not happen. Um, and then for the following six weeks or six months or so, I, I pretended that it didn't happen. I kept on telling people that it didn't happen. And, and uh, my friend who I was, the, the woman who I uh, assaulted, we were very close friends. And um, Um, so probably like eight, eight to 12 months later, I um, started the apology process. Mm -hmm. It took me three rounds to properly apologize. The first time I kind of just didn't, didn't touch on the particulars and um, And the second, third times I, I, I um, properly apologized. And um, we ended up actually doing, uh, we went to the same, we ended up being friends for like a few, like multiple years after that and actually did some ad advocacy work together. But um, yeah, I just still <laughs> evidently by this response mm. feel, um, like I just, my identity has always been tied to the notion of being a good person, like from a very young age. Yeah. So I still evidently struggle with the, um, you know, there's, there's still, when, when you do something that you don't think you're capable of doing, you, I feel like you come out of that process labeling yourself as a monster. And I think, you know, Annalise, you and I have kind of worked through some of those emotions, but, um, some it still lingers, obviously, and I just feel so bad, you know? Mm -hmm. 
So anyways, that's, that's, what, that's what happened. Um, that I think framed a lot of my um, getting involved in the advocacy space. Like I think you told me once that a lot of the folks that are in the advocacy space are either past perpetrators or past survivors. Um, not always, uh, and feel free to cut that out. But I think that's what what uh, drew me in is I, I I felt like it must like I got involved in um, sexual violence intervention education. I, I think because I was telling myself that the problem there was a lack of education, and that's why I committed wrong. And therefore, if I could address the gap in education, then I would be um, I don't know, repenting or reconciling or something for my, uh, right. for my wrongdoing. And that kind of started the process and, and I'm not an advocacy really anymore, but I'm still like, yeah, I don't know. So that is the, uh, that is the, that is the, the story. And, uh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. You're welcome. There's obviously a vulnerability to this. And hopefully what folks are hearing too is an authenticity. I want to start, um, you and I have definitely talked about this before, but just to make this really clear, the difference between guilt and shame. Yeah. And so, like, go ahead. Sorry, like based on the, the definition that we've talked about in the past, I think it's guilt, guilt is feeling bad over something that you've done and, and shame is feeling bad over something that you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I definitely for a long time thought that I was a, just a monster and that everything good I was doing is just a superficial cover over what was at its core a, a, a bad a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And so not only is that incredibly painful for you to sort of step into shame, we also know from the research that it's you know, on a metadata level here, really not linked to good behavior change. So you might be a bit of an outlier here, but when we're talking about folks who feel shame, often what we then look at in terms of behavior is sort of just re-perpetrating what they've done and sort of recycling in. And rather than guilt is often a really productive feeling because it's like, I did that. That's not who I am. I don't want to do that. So I'm going to make sure that doesn't play out again. And so I just want to really sort of separate those two, because not only is it just fundamentally not true that you're an awful human, um, but on a sort of a larger scale, it's often a really, really unhelpful thing in terms of leading to change behavior. So the other part of this that I wanted to go and you did this sort of I watched you doing this throughout was you narrated the human you were and the perspective on the events then and then the human you are now kind of re-narrating that uh, postscript and so what that means is sort of at the time you were you were doing a lot of sort of figuring out whether these actions were wrong and and you you did say like you knew they were um but you were also part of your brain was saying that they were not or you were minimalizing or you were sort of deflecting diverting now that is not the human you are and you want to name those as being sexual assault and sexual violence and you want to own that you know in spite of your drinking that doesn't give you sort of a a cop-out card um 
But at the time, there's also just context to drinking, right? We do know that lots of sexual assaults happen under the context of drinking. Does that mean that you're not responsible? No, but it helps us name and identify trends and behaviors there. And so you're straddling this. And I think that that's, you know, that that's part of owning up to our behavior is that at the time of it, you were thinking of it differently and not from a place of total innocence, but you were telling yourself a different story about that behavior than you are now. And the story that you've really taken on and telling now is one of owning the impact of your behavior in comparison to then you were really not. So I saw that. Yeah. Um, it, well, I, I feel like during the time I, like the biggest thing for me that helped after clarify things is I, I feel like I didn't have a proper understanding of sexual violence or sexual assault. I felt like, you know, despite having committed acts of sexual violence, I left high school believing that sexual violence only happened in like movies and television shows. So I, I had a, like, I, I didn't label it properly. Um, and I, I also, I think, assumed I, I didn't think that I caused the harm that I did, like, which sounds so probably stupid from, from the listener's perspective, but I, it was like, I just, I wasn't considering the other person at all. It's not like I was trying to be malicious or, or I don't know, wield power or, or anything. It was just, not just, just it's the wrong, wrong word to preface it. Um, yeah, I, I just didn't understand what I was doing. And I mm-hmm. thought that, that, you know, if anything, the people that were on the people that I was doing this to, like, wouldn't even remember, like, you know, like just wouldn't, it wouldn't even register. Like they, they were intoxicated. You know, I, I, I didn't, if I knew that it would cause as much damage, like I, I just, I never, I never, I never would have done that. Um, and I think it was, that was a f- interesting th- thing for me because I think a lot of this, started like I think the shame like I started recognizing objectively the shame that existed um after you know in first year I was I was I had a a very close friend um and I was with that person when she had a panic attack related to a past assault the previous fall and I, I remember just just seeing the like the response in the hospital with her as she was reliving this past experience and you know like completely oblivious to her surroundings just like stuck in 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 her trauma um and i just i don't know the the notion that i could cause harm to not not it wasn't that i you know it wasn't to that same extent but just the, the notion of here's this person who's who is you know in so much pain and suffering as a result of, of something that, you know, and I, I didn't do this, the, the same thing, but I did something all, all on the same spectrum and I still caused harm. And, you know, that's when I think, you know, I, I really started, I don't know, it started, I guess it, it galvanized me into getting more involved in, in advocacy, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's the kind of the proper progression. That's so interesting that you sort of bring forward that that story of like viscerally feeling alongside a survivor 
what that is. Um, so we introduced the concept of intent versus impact in our programming with men, but also in other spaces. And, you know, it sort of reminds me of what you're narrating here, which is in high school, there was a, most of your brain power and sort of focus was on your intent. Your intent wasn't harmful. You're not an awful human. There was a niggling thing in your mind that was saying what I just did was not okay. So there's, this is where like the false innocence of this doesn't play out. Um, and you didn't say it did, but just on sort of a larger scale, that's not helpful, but you were focused on intent and we separate these concepts and we we do that because we want the focus to be on impact regardless of your intent. And in fact, your intent may have been to cause harm, may have not been. And I really don't want to hear about it in a lot of ways if we're going to do the good work of accountability, which is honoring the impact of our actions. And you got a front row seat to the impact of someone's actions through that other survivor. And so I think you were having to collide that with your focus on intent being kind of where you were at in high school and it kind of yeah. makes me wonder if over time that's been part of your real progression is sort of opening your mind to the impact of this and the the guilt or shame of that is so much more deep now absolutely it's been such a slow slow process uh, and like even I think it was even my third year uh, of post-secondary I was living with my brother at the time and I can't remember the context of the of the story uh, but at this point he was aware that I was involved in advocacy and he brought the point of do you think well he didn't say this exactly but do you think that you're in advocacy because you previously caused harm and even though I was involved in advocacy and even though I acknowledged my wrongdoing I had not yet formed that direct link and so that was like I left the room <laughs> like I was extremely uncomfortable so it was like it goes to show that, you know, committed the act in like nine or grade nine and 10 really had that transformative experience in first year. And still two, two and a half years later, I'm still like, no, nope, that didn't cause this. I'm just, you know, I'm just doing this advocacy work because that's what I want to do. You know, like it's, right. I was still, I feel like even, even at that point, I was making myself feel better about my actions. I didn't start this, you know, advocacy thing because I wanted to make it you know, because I'm reconciling past mistakes, I'm doing it because I'm a good person. And that's still, you know, I'm trying to claw back at this identity of, of being a good person and, and not being defined by this, you know, gigantic mistake that I made. And that is coming back to shame for me because you're trying to Absolutely. prove you're a good person. Yeah. Because they're proud of you that really doesn't think you are. Yeah. Versus guilt. I did a really bad thing and I want to make it better in the ways that I can, but also just honor that in a lot of ways I can't. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to use that actually as a pivot to talk about, like, let's break down what accountability is. I've constantly referred to it um, up till now, but we haven't actually defined it. So we use a particular model. There's, you know, I don't know if we're by no means the experts in the work of accountability. Folks who've done way deeper, longer work around restorative justice have pretty darn good grasp of this. But we use Mia Mingus's model, which is, you know, there's four components of accountability. And then I'd love to weave your sort of thinking and story through this. So self-reflection, apology, repair, change behavior. They're not necessarily linear. 
Um, that being said, self-reflection usually has to have commenced before the others can um, sort of fall through that. So when you were narrating it earlier, I, I and also just knowing you, like I, I see those in play, <laughs> um, which is why, you know, I wanted to obviously have you as a guest on a thing about accountability, but I think it would be helpful because too often when we're talking about harm, sexual harm or otherwise, we equate accountability to like an apology and often a really bad one. You mentioned three takes at your apology, but you know, an apology that really centers your intent, not the impact. That's a bad apology. An apology that centers the word, but um, that's a bad apology. So we kind of equate accountability to apology, but there's so much more to it and self-reflection. Anyways, I should stop talking, get your vibes on this. um, And then I'll sort of pepper in. Yeah. So self-reflection happened pretty quickly after all these, I'm a, I think I'm a fairly reflective person, like at least to the capacity of identifying that a, a past action was wrong and acknowledging that it's not aligned with my set of values. Um, so I think that happened pretty continuously and pretty immediately, unless your assessment is different. I think it's been a process for you. I think it it's happened immediately because you realized yeah. something about this was not okay. Yeah. But, you know, I keep coming back to that moment in first year with the survivor. That was a place of self-reflection and looking at impact. Huge. Huge. Because then you retrospectively see that. Then your, what was it, your brother? Whoever. um, Sort of calling you out a little bit. And again, weaving back in that self-reflection. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So that's that's a good point. It's been an ongoing thing. And probably there's been a round of self-reflection that that premeditated each of these ensuing steps um in terms of apologizing yeah as as we both alluded to three tries i eventually what was changing in each of the attempts like was between the first and the third i put up a a much less of a defense like i could feel that i was still holding on to this notion of me being a good person in the first one or deflecting the severity of my actions through, you know, some sort of, I can't remember the exact narrative, but I recall, you know, dulling the the apology slightly or or going light on details or whatever, not being properly accountable. And then by the time I had the third one, it was like, I recognize what I did. Like, I recognize this, what happened. I know I did this. I know it was incredibly wrong. I am extremely sorry. Like I have not, like I, I I wasn't trying to defend myself at that, at that last one. And Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's a weird feeling um, being that vulnerable and, you know, basically begging for forgiveness. Um, yeah. Repair, I think, was a slow process. Um, and, 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 like, truthfully, with my friend, that repair was actually faster than I predicted or like not, not that I predicted, like it wasn't a strategy or anything, uh, faster looking back than, than maybe what people might expect because we were good friends in advance. And, you know, after I apologized the, the, the third time, um, you know, we became friends again. And even through university, like we, you know, we'd run together and, and chat with each other and live nearby. And like we, we were buddies. Um, I think a secondary form of repair has been, also my relationship with myself. Um, 
I don't know if that counts as repair, but I think it required repair. And that, that would be needed for your change behavior. So I think that's a part of it for sure. But okay. there's a part of your repair with her that I just want to pause on for a yeah, second. Yeah, please, please, please do. Um, so repair is is often like, you know, the trickiest one because for it to be really done well, it needs to be driven by the survivor. So for oh. some survivors, repair, that doesn't mean that they have to like write it up in a formal document. But what I mean by that is, you know, for some survivors repair is to feel really seen and heard in the impact that you had on them, which often kind of comes out through the apology. And, and that that's, that's what they need for others. They need time for others. They need, um, you know, a ceasing of the relationship. This cannot go on. For others, they they really need to continue to kind of talk it through with you, um, to really believe in your apology and to see your change behavior over time for that to feel like repair. But repair is a feeling that is really derived from the end of the survivor. Okay. And and so I have no doubt that that sort of is true in this context. And it sounds like wasn't. I mean, we don't know because we're not talking to her, but it yeah, was I mean, perhaps not a, an extensive process. Um, but I just want to sort of give that context. Like that was really, that was up to her. And in a lot of ways, she chose to continue this relationship with you. Yeah. And so repair was done all in that context. It, it, if it's purely from the perspective of the survivor, then how can I talk to repair at all? Like, how can I speak to that point? Well, it's not purely in the context of the survivor, but the survivor kind of puts the guardrails around what it is. Okay. So they have different needs. We all have different needs. Um, So if repair feels like somehow the relationship has been, is able to move forward or has like ceased, but the, the relationship is where that repair is situated in you don't get to dictate as the person who's caused harm, what that need is. And for many of us who've caused whatever kind of harm, like in my marital relationship, I have caused different kinds of harm and my goodness, I'm like exhausted and just want this to be over with, but it's on a time horizon of the person who was harmed. And sometimes that's short, sometimes that's long, sometimes that requires work. Sometimes that doesn't change behavior. That is on you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah, for me, I, I guess you could refer to like, particularly as it pertained to how I approach relationships, I educated myself a lot on what to look for. So like, if I'm at a, you know, am I, is there enthusiastic consent? What does the body language tell me, you know, uh, any signs of, of drunkenness in terms of, of pace or, or walking or slurred speech or half closed eyelids or anything like that. So I, I just started becoming significantly more aware of the signs and wouldn't, you know, would, would walk away from situations where somebody approached me if they seemed uh, under the influence. Um, so I was more in terms of my personal approach to relationships. Anytime I've been in, in um, anytime I've been in, in a relationship with somebody, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for them to say, you know, oh, it's not good anymore or it hurts or whatever, like stop in the middle. And um, I've always been very like in some, that's often been um, followed by an apology and, and 
I always try to be like, no, like don't apologize. Like that's not, you know, whatever, like we can come back to this or we don't, you know, it's like, I, I try to be very uh, open and supportive in, in those moments. Cause I know there's almost like a, like a, a stigma around quote unquote blue balls and like this expectation of straight women to always, you know, finish the men, not to get too weird or graphic with this, but like there is that stigma. And so I'm, I, I try to try to mitigate that. And, and then I think the final aspect of behavior change was, was trying to get involved uh, in advocacy and just like n- not to have any particular impact, but just to try to help a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, yeah. Where I think it's dangerous is if people get involved in advocacy, but don't do the work of accountability. Um, So say people who get involved in advocacy work who have caused harm, but don't actually do the deep work of accountability and those other steps and the personal change behavior. That is, that's uh, tricky. That's very tricky and can often feel a bit like, um, a wolf among sheeps, but in the context that you're sort of talking about, you, you've done a lot of that work. And by no means am I trying to set you up just for our listeners, listeners as sort of perfection to be embodied. You know, I'm sure these, there's parts of how you've gone through this process that are, that are flawed, that didn't quite land how the survivor needed them to survivors. Um, and there's parts that we can tease out that were really helpful models. And so not only, yes, have you changed your own behavior and you've been much more personally cognizant of your impact um, in all of these different sexual encounters and moments. And now you're also trying to, or you have also tried to support others and change behavior or even sort of prevention before that moment. Sure. So again, just for folks listening, self-reflection is really contingent on sort of separating intent and impact and thinking about impact. Apology is about acknowledging your impact then. And for those of us who've done apologies before we have that language, it can be really hard because we really want to defend our intent or we really want to set the context that like, you know, we were all drinking, so blah, 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 which is really just defending intent. Um, But an apology should center impact. Repair is really driven by the person who's been harmed, but not that they have to sort of lay it all out in a written document, but more, how do we move forward and do we move forward? And they sort of put the guardrails to that and then change behavior on your own account. Okay. I know when we were pre-talking, there was something that we really wanted to address about cancel culture. And here's where I start feeling nervous because this is, this is a oh, kettle rinse or whatever the analogy is. But, um, okay. So here's things that swirl around when I think about cancel culture, sort of the, it's been really important to me in the work of sort of accountability that in, in order to sort of deflect shame and do this well, that we don't sort of call, you know, we don't label you with a scarlet letter <laughs> that there, you know, there's a tricky line between calling someone a perpetrator and that being like their brand versus somebody who has perpetrated, who has caused harm. And that's their action that they did their guilt of that effect. And so when we're thinking about cancel culture, it's, it's going for accountability. It's going for it. 
Um, but it's using a scarlet letter approach, I think, to do that work. But, you know, like, are there moments where cancel culture is possibly needed because other forms of accountability have failed? Is it ever successful? How are we measuring this? There's so much swirling for me. How about you insert yourself? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So as a, like that, that was my biggest fear when I was thinking about coming forward and talking today. And, and like, I'm a, yeah, I, I think there's a big risk here. And I think if, like, I, I, as I told you, like, I've told nobody that I'm talking to you today just because, you know, if I talk to my mom, for example, like she would yell at me for being so stupid, I think. Um, like, I've had conversations with her before, roughly on this topic where um, I, I think that I should be more vocal with the story as a, as a, not catalyst, it's a, in, you know, too much self-importance, just as a, as a, something to nudge forward, some positive dialogue about this. I've, I've seen on multiple occasions that when I share this story with other men, particularly ones who have perpetrated, and I think that's actually a, a relatively large proportion of people. Um, I, I see such a response where they feel comfortable sharing and they will come forward. And I think that's just a, such a critical first step in getting them along that, that process of accountability. And so, yeah, like, I think this is very important, hence why I'm talking to you, but I don't think it's a good idea. Like, I think there's legitimate risks of, of talking to you. And I think at some point, you know, I could get canceled. And, you know, if that, if that time comes, do I even really have a leg to stand on in defending myself? Like I've committed harm. I was young, mm -hmm. sure. But I still committed like very legitimate harm. I've induced suffering in another person and there should be some consequence to that. If that, if that means that I'm like washing my, or like flushing my career down the toilet, like hopefully not, but you know, we've seen some examples of that in the media. And I remember that when we were doing some of the advocacy with the, with, with men in our, you know, in our history, like that's, that was the biggest fear is like, they started listing off celebrities who had a quote unquote false allegation against them. And all of a sudden their career was over. So that's not saying that I don't, I don't share those thoughts. I think we have to hold um, celebrities and people accountable, but you know, by that same brush, you should be holding me accountable. And that just subjects myself to, to some risk. So I don't know. Yeah. And even as you're talking, I'm getting clearer in that if you just use the word and we need to hold you accountable yeah. and who are these people sitting in the arena, getting to decide what is the form of punishment that equates your accountability? Because if we come back to this model of accountability, particularly the repair, that's up to the survivor. Us armchair sort of judges and folk looking in on this, people yeah. don't get to decide what accountability means and what sort of, we almost equate that then with like repercussion or punishment, except for survivors. And that's true when we come back to like, what does it mean to be survivor centered? In the context of the criminal justice system, nothing moves forward except what the survivor wants. And many survivors don't want it to move forward in the criminal justice system for all kinds of really good reasons. Some about system failure, sure, but some about I'm in relationship with this human. And this is not what actually healing looks like to me. 
healing looks like them admitting the impact of their actions. And therefore I'm able to move forward in this. That's where we come back to like, what is repair? And, you know, for your story, you don't owe us like self-flagellation. You don't owe society self-flagellation and punishment as the only way to hold accountability. You also don't, I don't, you know, I think there's a real debate space where what's the value add of you quote unquote coming out as having perpetrated? Does it help elicit others in taking up ownership of what they've done? That would be helpful. But if it leads to you getting punished or sort of cancel cultured in the context of your story where that's not what's being called upon by a survivor or a need like that, that is not accountability. That is a misname of accountability right there. Caveat, just because I've said some bold statements, (laughs) some parts of a cancel culture, I think when I said earlier, like where other forms of accountability have failed, maybe they're needed. That's where I think this is true. If survivors have come forward against famous humans and nothing has happened or like sort of what they need from repair is not moving forward. And then we collectively come together to say, okay, no, I think there's something there, but I would always want to be driven by survivors and what their needs are around that repair. I, I mean, I can't speak to the end there. I, I fully support everything you just said. My, like, when I say that I should be held accountable, like I, I recognize that no one has a right. Like I, self-flagellation isn't the path forward, but also I, like I, I can recognize that I feel like probably the majority of survivors, and I'm not here to speak on behalf of them, but I feel like they haven't, a lot of survivors haven't had the opportunity to repair because they didn't ever receive the apology or they didn't ever witness accountability from the side of their perpetrator. So I, I can, you know, from a distance appreciate why there's so much pent up frustration with the system and frustration with yeah. the fact that this keeps on happening and no one seems to care. Like I, I, I appreciate why there's cancel culture because it's been a system of privilege in place for you know many, many years and the tables are starting to turn and, you know, cancel culture, you know, while potentially not always being perfectly guided, it also does serve as a strong disincentive for this kind of behavior in the future. So like it, I just, I, it's a complicated issue. Like I, I don't, I don't totally know how to think about it because I appreciate the need for repair, even if people are like some, some of the cancel culture might be people's way of repairing, even if it's not their own perpetrator, like they're still feeling some sort of justice from the injustice that was committed to them, you know, even if it wasn't the same person. So it's Ooh, a, that's it's a, a tricky one. That's a tricky one. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I'm not trying to, again, I'm not trying to. Oh no, yeah. About- yeah. yeah it's just tough yeah but back to sort of your like I think your your fears are real yep. and I it's sort of interesting because I I really fundamentally don't believe that accountability means that you owe us sort of punishment for the rest of your life that you owe us a scarlet letter that precedes your name that you owe us really honestly anything other than sort of working through accountability with the folks that you've harmed. And I'm weary of any of us judging 
that process as externals to it even. So even we've heard parts of it on this podcast and folks may have feelings, whether that was good enough or really great. And yeah, we don't know. We don't know how she felt. Um, We don't know enough, but my goodness, I do not believe. And I think it's incredibly harmful actually that accountability has to equate scarlet letter punishment going forward. And here's why, and here's my pivot to our last little chunk. You know, if we want to invite other men in particular who've caused harm into this space of accountability and into the work that is needed then to actually prevent sexual violence, that sort of scarlet lettering is not doing us a service in that space. And again, massive caveat, there's moments where it's needed. We've sort of laid out some of that, but you know, I, I want you to be able to tell this story in ways that is, I think it's really impactful. And I think it highlights imperfectly routes for others to start to think about how they take on accountability and sort of how it's, it's a process. It's years in the making for you. Um, and you continue to work like emotionally work through that today and continue to, I want folks to hear that kind of story. And I want that to come out from others because you mentioned earlier, you think it's, it's many who've done this and we, we have some more information from the research more and more, you know, it's one, three undergraduate men who will commit a sexual assault while they're undergraduate men. Like, yeah, it is the many. And until we can grapple with that um, and have sort of folks work in the work of accountability, we're not going to get there. Uh, I can speak to perhaps some of the conversations I've had with folks or how do you want me to? Yeah, no, I just laid it on a like soapbox moment. You take that up. Good job. <laughs> um, what, what are some of the conversations you've had? Yeah. Like it's, it's typically centered around, like I've shared the story probably three or four times. Um, some in our facilitation sessions, some through other events and some just intimate conversations with, with people that are close to me. I feel like the more vulnerable and the more intimate the moment, the more likely they're willing to step into that vulnerability as well. And, and I've, I had that in, in the private conversation where I expressed not only what I had done, but also the shame I felt around it and how I was starting to process through it. And that prompted a similar confession from the person I was speaking with where and they actually did mention, you know, blame and and being seen as a really bad person as being some of the things that had stopped him from sharing those things in the past. But it was it's like it was a relatively quick conversation, but like more like 25 minutes or so. But but, you know, covered so much ground. I, I could feel the progress from the beginning to the end of the conversation and and. Even when we were in our, our, you know, the smaller facilitation sessions, um, seeing the impact of, of vulnerability on prompting others to do the same, I, I think it's such a powerful asset in engaging men and in particular perpetrators or pe- men who have perpetrated rather into the conversation. Mm-hmm. And we've both seen that sort of tangibly, like, you know, frankly, we've now structured it in our programs with men that our male facilitator 
discloses a moment of causing harm to elicit a space that feels vulnerable and somewhat safe to sort of have others engage in that same accountability stepping stones uh, of that. Yeah. Well, thank you. This was a conversation that we've been wanting to have for a while that we were both nervous about, I think very different reasons, but, um, (laughs) uh, and, you know, speaking really frankly, there's a risk even in some ways for Inova to put this out. And I desperately wanted to, and want to, because the sort of messiness of what we just worked through, because it was imperfect, Um, and your story is imperfect and you are a human who is imperfect. And of course I am. So like, we don't have it all figured out, but it is a model of trying to do that work. And that's what I wanted to put out in the world. So thank you. Yeah, of course. Like, and when we were chatting a couple of weeks ago, kind of prepping for this, I asked a question then that I'm still curious about now. Like, what is it, what does allyship look like for me? If I'm not, if I'm not, if I'm no longer in the advocacy space, um, if I'm no longer, you know, if that's not my job or if that's not my day to day, like how can I, apart from like telling this story from the rooftops, which I is not an, a route I want to go. Also, yeah. I think that'd be very unproductive. Um, but like apart from leveraging the story, how can I still be an ally? Because I'm, you know, in a relationship. I'm not in advocacy work, and I, you know, I just I don't I don't I wanted help, and I don't know how. And like, what are my options? I think in a lot of ways you're doing it. Perhaps you're just not aware of it. The conversations that you have one-on-one with other men and sort of stepping into that space of vulnerability or discomfort in doing that. So maybe it doesn't always come up naturally, but sort of being willing to do that. So not the rooftops, but in some sort of closer relational spaces, being able to sort of model that ownership of what you've done and the impact of it. You're doing it with your change behavior in the relationships and the sexual encounters you've had. Of course, you've done it in the more formalized context of the advocacy work you've done. But I also think there's ways in which very sort of individually, quietly you do that and sort of, you know, there's something that happens in the media and you sort of make sure that at whatever dinner table you're at in the following week or two that you're that a survivor-centered approach is sort of voiced on some level. That could be on your social media. And before you say it, I know you don't have any, but for others, um, that could be being willing to sort of, that's not on brand for you, but being willing to at least sort of repost something um, that comes across uh, and sort of amplify the messaging of that. There's sort of really relational individual ways of doing that um, which you're you're doing at play they're change behavior they're uncomfortable conversations they're modeling taking ownership of your impact in particular ways those are all allies thank you a plus on my answer yeah yeah, absolutely not 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 accessible it's accessible and but still challenging so it's good okay well We're going to end it there. Thank you again. Thank you, Annalise. I appreciate it. Piece by Piece is a production of ANOVA, A Future Without Violence. 
Anova's on social media, and you can learn more about Piece by Piece and Anova at www.anovafuture.org. A reminder that if you need to talk, please call our 24-hour crisis and support line at 1-800-265-1576. Our sexual assault counselors are available for virtual appointments, and our shelters are open. We're here for you. A special thank you to Najee Naim Zada for technical production, Emma Richard for visual content creation, and music for this podcast is from the album Sweet and Joyful by Crowander, the track Humming. Music access downloaded and used under Creative Commons license via freemusicarchive.org. See you next time.